We might tend to think of it as halted by World War I, but actually, you know, if we're thinking about the British or French empires in Africa, they really expanded post-World War I because their, their German rival folded up or collapsed. The control and, and expansion really keeps, keeps going on through World War II, and the digestion of these vast imperial claims is something that continues. Imagine a world in which your country is purchased by a foreigner. Not taken over by a foreign country, mind you, but rather bought and paid for via a purchase contract. While there are many instances of one country invading or occupying another throughout history, the late 1800s saw European powers come to own, at least in their eyes, nearly the entire continent of Africa. Europeans exploited a strictly legalistic process in order to take possession of and subsequently exploit an entire continent with chilling consequences. Join us as we explore contracts and imperialism and their effect on the world as we know it. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Stephen Press is an assistant professor of history at Stanford and an affiliated member of the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, the Center for African Studies, and the Stanford Center for Law and History. He has published extensively in various academic journals, and his most recent book, published in 2021 with Harvard University Press, was Blood and Diamonds, Germany's Imperial Ambitions in Africa. Perhaps most apropos for today's discussion is a book he published in 2017 called Rogue Empires, Contracts and Conmen in Europe's Scramble for Africa, which received the American Historical Association's Pacific Coast Branch Book Award. To learn more about Stephen Press and his work, visit history.stanford.edu slash people slash Stephen dash press. Stephen, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I always like to start with just a level set of sorts to get everybody on the same page because we talk about a variety of subjects on the podcast, and uh, I am not an expert in all of them, nor are our listeners. And so to start, I was really curious to get a definition from you because a lot of us grow up learning about colonialism, uh, the, the 13 colonies and all that. And in those history classes, we get a, a fairly good sense, I think, of what that is, but it's been a while for a lot of us. And so to start, what is colonialism and is it different from, is it distinct from imperialism? Are, are the two words synonymous or do they indicate something different? Yeah, the first thing I would say, Alex, is that they, they are often used synonymously. I think as far as historians are concerned, there are a few potential differences to keep in mind. As you mentioned, you know, when thinking about colonialism, one possibility for that word is that we're looking at eras like the colonial era in American history. But more broadly, you know, we're thinking about kind of asymmetric or unequal relationships in terms of governance. In the case of the fledgling colonies that you mentioned, there was obviously an unequal and you know, to some extent problematic relationship between a kind of metropolitan Britain and a peripheral or, or sort of colonial set of colonies in North America. For my purposes, you know, looking at imperialism, which again is often, you know, uh, referred to as a, a, a kind of colonialism, you know, I'm really looking at the 19th and early 20th century and looking at uh, a couple things that were a, a little bit different. If you're thinking about that kind of classic colonial era in the case of the United States or then the 13 colonies, 
you're not necessarily operating in an environment where there's tremendous great power competition or industrialized sort of machinery for spreading power and control around the world. Now, it's not 100% different, but when we're thinking about imperialism, we're thinking about certain associations in terms of European culture that are there in the late 19th and early 20th century. And one of those things is that there was kind of broad public and sort of social engagement with potential imperial expansion. The expansion of this colonial control, it involves unequal relationships in terms of race and religion. That's not something that would have existed, say, back in the early 1700s. There might have been, it might have been the case that there was quite a bit of discussion in, say, England as to what was happening in the American colonies. But that discussion was a relatively thin level in terms of broad engagement, whereas in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of these issues and causes associated with called colonialism and called imperialism are really being kind of discussed in an almost sort of mass consumer way in terms of newspapers, in terms of politics. It's all kind of at a, a higher pitch and presumably the stakes are higher as well when you think about the potential for, for major calamitous war, global war really resulting from these uh, imperial rivalries in places like Africa. That sounds a bit like the early colonial era coming into the 1800s that, that mirrors in a lot of ways, in my mind, the Industrial Revolution and just the overall shrinking of the world, if you will. And, and one of my major questions for you was thinking about your work in rogue empires. You really focus on the mid to late 1800s. That was in the throes of the Industrial Revolution. Things were moving much faster than they were, certainly when the colonists got to the East Coast here in the U.S., is that the sole major evolution, you think? Or are there other major themes that you, you've seen emerge as you move from early colonialism to this more industrial imperialism, if you will? Well, it's a great question. It's still debated, really, by historians how much of an evolution or not really kind of separates these two big eras. There's one school of thought that thinks of a lot of what I'm describing, sort of the, the colonization of Africa, you know, in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, as a kind of fundamentally different process from earlier periods of, of colonialism. There's another school of thought that sees this all kind of uh, in a sort of continuity. If we looked at a place like India, for example, the dividing line is, is much less clear. I think when the size of the African continent is taken into consideration and the relative lightness of kind of European penetration of the African continent is, is considered pre-1870s, 1880s, I think that's when there starts to be uh, a notion entrenched that this was something fundamentally different or new because the speed of it, as you mentioned, a speed assisted by new technologies like steamships, uh, medical technologies, including things like Quinine, you know, a drug that made it possible to suppress and in some cases shake off the effects of malaria. These technologies were allowing a kind of rapidity and staggering breadth in terms of expansion that really would not have been thinkable uh, in, in, in many cases just 10, 20, 30 years earlier, and certainly not 100 or 200 years earlier. What seemed to stick out with me too, and I wonder if it's a fair distinction, the American colonialism efforts certainly it, it seemed like the flavor was markedly different because the intent was for people to go there and live as opposed to the African imperialism that, that you, you focus on seems to really swirl around the intent to go and extract resources. But is that a, a fair distinction or is it much grayer than that? Well, that, that is, I think, a fair distinction. One of the reasons that imperialism starts to be kind of a, a term in popular use in the late 1800s and early 1900s is that there's a lot of debate about who's really benefiting from this this process of kind of European colonial expansion overseas. 
And this is caught up in a discourse about what you mentioned, which is that in a lot of kind of classic colonial cases from the European perspective, we are talking about settler uh, colonies in which a lot of Europeans are migrating to destinations overseas with a great deal of violence involved, but but migrating nonetheless. We think of the United States, we think of Canada, we think of Australia, some of these sort of classic cases. These are settler colonies. They become settler colonies. They have a different ethos in some ways from what is often associated with imperialism, which is kind of a very rapid growth, a growth that's not tied really as much to people as it is to industry. And a growth that's really premised almost from the start on kind of extraction of resources in terms of labor, minerals, the soil, right? So this is arguably a difference. And the debate over its dimensions starts up really immediately, which is also kind of a, a difference from those earlier eras and areas of settlement that you describe. That feels like such a modern argument to, to debate whether this is people going to live or just extracting resources that, that has such a modern flavor. It's kind of surprising that that was several hundred years ago. It does indeed. And um, I think it, it you know resonates uh, to some extent with political debate more broadly. I mean, we always have uh, questions in terms of budgets and resource allocation about who's benefiting, what's public, what's private. And a lot of these questions are really kind of consistent throughout European colonial history. And into the era that that we would describe as uh, kind of the era of high imperialism or new imperialism is sometimes called. So yeah, it's there and it's tied to different visions too about what life in colonial settings is supposed to look like. Is that an older pre-modern vision or is it one that's you know thoroughly uh, modern from the European perspective and in keeping with things like industrialization or kind of a new shaping of, of the economy and, and states? You mentioned the steamship quinine I'm sure there are weapons innovations as well. I'm sure there are, you could have an entire hour podcast just talking <laughs> about the innovations that enabled imperialism. I'm certain of it. But one of the things that we touch on a lot here is the innovations that occurred more in a financial and legal realm. And I, I find those fascinating. You know, we've talked about consumer debt with a professor named Lewis Hyman at, at Cornell, who actually taught me back in college way back when. And I find these financial and legal innovations uh, fascinating. And I'm curious, did financial and legal innovations help the imperialistic expansion into Africa as much as technological ones? Or how do you think about that? I think it's possible to say they did. You know, in, in my research, I was particularly interested in really legal innovations or rather innovative interpretations of, of law. If you're thinking about finance, there's really no question that in a lot of cases, fairly powerful European financial institutions either kind of sponsored or sort of joined up with a lot of the projects that took place in the late 1870s, uh, early 1880s, and, and into the 1890s. Innovations that existed there are a little bit difficult to pinpoint. I mean, a lot of what was happening was was fairly consistent, again, with that kind of earlier colonial period you're describing. Is that the joint stock companies and things like that, spreading risk? Yeah. Now, if we think about that, it's really interesting in the early days of classic interpretations of European imperialism. I'm thinking about the origin of something like the East India Company. It is intimately tied up with innovations in the financial sector. The joint stock company, as you mentioned, um, really stock markets in the Dutch case, the Dutch East India Company is, is very intimately tied up in the creation and proliferation of some of the first European stock markets. And a, a, another point to mention there is that public debt, which we you know think about in, in a kind of tradition that really starts with major European innovation in places like England and, and the Netherlands. Uh, public debt early on, 1600s, 1700s, is, is very tied up with 
uh, colonial machinations, including those of the East India Company. Now, in the period of imperialism, again, so to speak, um, the legal innovation I'm interested in is this sort of creative interpretation of international law and what was possible, as you mentioned in the in the intro, presuming to buy or purchase control of a country or, or, or sort of governmental powers is something that could be seen in, in some, say, classic European settings when a a duke or someone like that as part of a marriage contract kind of transfers control over a particular territory to someone else as maybe part of a dowry or something like that. Um, but the idea that anyone in almost a, a free market setting could run around the world and do this and produce a document that in some sense was going to be certified or stamped as authentic and legitimate, that's something that you really don't see prior to the period and place of kind of the scramble for Africa. So yeah, I think, I think that's an innovation. And that idea that really pervades a lot of your work, that that kind of fascination with the getting bent around the axle uh, on getting the legal framework in place, I found to be almost funny looking backwards. I mean, it, it's it's bizarre looking backwards. And I found myself wondering, why were people going in and making sure that the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed in these contracts prior to strong arming their way into extracting a lot of resources from Africa. That that fascination and obsession with the legality of it, I found so fascinating. And from your perspective, why do you think there was such a an effort put around, quote unquote, buying that sovereignty over a country as opposed to just taking it? Why did the contract matter? Well, that, that's a, a complex question that I've thought about for a while. And I think there are there are different layers to that. So I'll just kind of in no particular order, go through some things that come to mind. First thing is that I think to some extent, the contracts are about um, reassuring their authors, their European authors, that is, and their audiences at home, that this is on the up and up, that this isn't necessarily morally corrupt. This is in keeping with kind of a, a, a somewhat bourgeois order of property and property transfer that's fairly commonplace in places like England, Germany, France, what have you. It's almost like a, the moral role that indulgences played during crusades and so forth. Like it, it, it's all right because I have this piece of paper. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I mean the the power of this piece of paper, which in some cases was just shown at a distance, really, rather than really kind of inspected up close. So there's that kind of component to it, but there's also something else that's going on where there's a lot of imitation. You know, other people have done this in the past, whether governments, kings, companies like the East India Company. If I as a you know, kind of adventurer or rogue type can can produce something like they've produced, something like what they've produced in, in given locations, if that's been enough, if that's been kind of the, the foundation for the, the sort of expansion you talk about, which is often in terms of violence or conquest, if, if I can produce these pieces of paper too, how far can I really go with them? Is it something that other governments will be forced to go on record as accepting or tolerating if they've done it already? You know, can I confront them with a sort of precedent that that they can't deny. Um, I think that's that's part of what's happening too. The other thing is, you know, there is this fascination or obsession with with paper documents, contracts, and really pushing uh, the envelope, so to speak, with what can go into those, what can be bought or, or sold. And I think part of what's going on there is that that these documents are convertible or malleable in a way. They they are fixed in theory, but in reality, we have a lot of copies and imitations circulating almost immediately. And there's quite a bit of mystery about what's really in them and who sees them, uh, to whom they are shown and how, how they're advertised are all, I think, kind of operative points. They allow a lot of flexibility in an odd way. Um, sometimes they're very rigid and interpreted as such, 
But in other cases, there's, um, they allow for a lot of license exaggeration. And they also allow the, the sort of metropolitan powers, France, Britain, Germany, to kind of remain at a distance and say, all right, these are, these are legitimate proceedings, but I reserve the right to step in if I feel something's going awry, or uh, I reserve the right really to withdraw my legitimation of these documents if I don't like the way something is going in a uh, sort of imperial setting. So breaking these documents down a little bit, first off, they're almost solely, perhaps solely European. Is that right? Why European powers? Why did you not see you know, other parts of the world racing to Africa to project their might onto the continent? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Certainly, it's, it's plausible that had a few things gone differently, the scramble for Africa would not have unfolded uh, by predominantly European means in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Certainly, the, the Ottoman Empire was established in most of northern Africa prior to the period of great European penetration of the African continent. That's one of the reasons, in part, that this penetration remains pretty peripheral. I think if we're, if we're thinking about why this happened predominantly at European hands, there are a couple things to keep in mind. Travel and logistics posed a considerable limitation prior to the opening of the Suez Canal in the 1850s and 1860s. So that's, that's one factor. But the contracts you, you mentioned prior to the Scramble for Africa, something you, you only would have seen in European destinations. You're right, uh, in the sort of uh, story that I, that I traced in regard to the island of Borneo, there was a somewhat established practice of transferring governorship or rule over uh, somewhat peripheral parts of the uh, Sultanate of Brunei to figures who were able to provide services, whether in the way of military might or financial assistance or mining or these sorts of things. This was not unheard of in some parts of the world. It's, it's curious, though, to see how it made its way to Africa. And as you mentioned, you know, that was something that was a European trajectory and a European transfer. So yeah, the confluence of the, the Suez Canal, the access, the technology, the proximity perhaps that was also enabled by the Suez Canal. And then you had that precedent. And I found that story really bizarre. Sir James Brooke over in Borneo. And in order to understand the story of the scramble for Africa, of all places, you have to jump over to Southeast Asia. How did you make that connection? Well, you're right. It's it's counterintuitive to to say the least. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> so I think if you if you take a step back and look backward, right, um, as you as you mentioned earlier, it's interesting to try to identify some of those connections, some of the kind of connective tissue, so to speak, between this early colonial period and this period of imperialism. And I think Brooke is one of the connections. He's sort of born into the rule of the East India Company not just in what we would now consider the Indian subcontinent, but also extending in interesting ways into Southeast Asia. People familiar with the founding of, of Singapore, for example, will know that kind of agents of the East India Company were running around, again, to use that phrase, and often signing treaties or producing agreements that brought additional imperial control to what was kind of a somewhat private, somewhat public British venture, right? Brooke is one of these people. His father's a judge for the East India Company, again, a company judge, kind of counterintuitive at first from our current sensibility. Brooke is a veteran of the East India Company military, and following an injury from battle, he's really looking for something to do, and he's uh, able to inherit a pretty good chunk of money, buys a yacht, and then sails to the island of Borneo, as one does, to really sort of uh, try to function as a mercenary in relation to an ongoing 
struggle that exists on this this very large island in which one particular ruler, the Sultan of Brunei, is trying to sort of uh, substantiate and keep control over a peripheral setting in which there's some mineral wealth at stake. Uh, 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 what is now referred to as Sarawak province winds up becoming Brooks, sometimes it's called a fiefdom, sometimes it's called a country, uh, sometimes it's called a state. Brooke is able to acquire this in exchange for military services. And so regardless of what you call it, Sarawak was was his. It was Brooks. It wasn't a country's. He owned this land? That's the claim he makes, and that's the claim that over time the Sultan of Brunei accepts, Britain accepts, and the rest of the world accepts, including the United States. So certainly if one looks closely, you know, if you look at the paperwork closely, if you can find it, it's going to be difficult to make the case that this is entirely on the up and up or without incident. But Brooke is able to establish throughout the world, really, certainly the European world, but also in addition to that, he's able to establish this unique title as an individual with no particular aristocratic heritage or no particular you know, financial might like the East India Company. He's able to establish that anyone can do this. And that is a really arresting precedent that almost immediately begins to attract adventurers from places like the United States, what we would now call uh, Latin America, Europe, Many people try to start imitating this first on the island of Borneo and then more broadly in Africa, but also in somewhat more far-flung destinations such as the Pacific. It has a feel almost akin to, I, I've thought before of, you know, at some point somebody said, okay, I'm the king of XYZ place. And before there wasn't a king. And then a thousand years later, we all just accept that that person's the king because there, there have always been kings. Brooke was kind of a, a paper king almost. He was a legal framework king in a more modern sense. That's it's fascinating. And, and so perhaps the first legal framework uh, king and sets a precedent that people say, aha, I can, I can own something. I can extract some wealth using this methodology. Is that the, the light that went on for a lot of people around the world? I think that is the light that went on. I think a lot of people looked at this in terms of, of potential for extraction of wealth. Now, there was quite a bit of egomania involved uh, as well. There's nothing like owning a country, too. Yeah, owning a company, owning a country. Many people want to do both. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, understandably, there's kind of a confluence there, right, in terms of ambition and, and sort of, yeah, ego again. But I think you're right. It was a light bulb moment. Um, and using paper claims to sort of develop actual control on the ground was something Brooke was able to do to some extent. His paper claims allowed him to call on the British Navy periodically for protection and sort of pursuit of particular projects. Uh, they allowed him to do things like take out loans. He wasn't particularly uh, successful financially with his personal role, but other people believed they could be if they were sort of endowed with additional business backing and, and sense. You know, if they had real money behind them rather than just James Brooke's small inheritance, they believed they could turn this paper potential into real sort of vast wealth. And arguably, you know, again, with a great deal of violence, that is what happened in some cases. And set us in time here, Brooke, which decade is this or decades when he gains control of Sarawak? He arrives on the island of Borneo around 1838. And within about four years, he's able to develop the claims to rule and effectively be king of this particular place and to get them increasingly concretely recognized, first by the Sultan of Brunei, later by Britain, and then eventually by pretty much every other European country you can think of. So 1840s, maybe 1850s, it sounds like when his rule is really being legitimated internationally. And so when do you think of shifting focus back to Africa? When was the real starting gun for the scramble for Africa? And when did 
European powers really in earnest start to go in and use this form of contract to purchase the land in Africa. So there are two kind of bridges, I think, that do the work you're talking about in terms of connecting or transferring the idea. One is a set of rather kooky Americans who show up in northeastern Borneo and attempt to do something like what Rook did. Uh, They work from about 1865 to 1870, and their project goes up in flames. But their, their residual rights to supposedly rule the northeastern section of the island of Borneo. They get uh, sort of advertised and pushed around Europe to various political leaders, Otto von Bismarck, for example. And the idea starts to, to sort of come about that these rights can be had at a, at a bargain price almost, and that the same sort of practice may well exist elsewhere. That idea gets picked up, if we're thinking about Germany, by a couple adventurers who then try to produce contracts somewhat similar to what Brooke produced in various sub-Saharan African locations. They point specifically to Brooke's success, if we put that you know, in quotation marks, as a clear legal precedent. The other strand that connects these places is the Belgian King Leopold II. Leopold II justifiably has a very poor reputation in terms of history and, and the public as of 2023. But Leopold II was one of the people circling around Brooke from the start trying to buy Brooke's kingdom, if you want to call it that. He closely studies Southeast Asia uh, as a site for colonial wealth and glory that he believes Belgium should be able to tap into, uh, that, he, that he sort of desperately wants to, to be involved in, in part because of a sort of inferiority complex relative to the Netherlands and other European colonial powers. Brooke refuses to deal with Leopold II, uh, really, despite flirting with him in terms of potentially selling his rights. But Leopold II never really gives up the chase, so to speak, and is constantly scanning the globe for ways to make this work. And when the rights that I referred to earlier, these American figures were, were trying to sell around Europe, when they finally do come up for sale to different parties, more respectable, more powerful parties, around 1881, 1882, Leopold II rediscovers this Borneo Brook possibility slash obsession. And he immediately starts converting efforts to colonize what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, sort of an area around the Congo River, around the Congo River Basin in Central Africa. He determines to use this exact model, as it's called, the Brook model, the Borneo model, in Central Africa. He doesn't need to worry about Southeast Asia anymore. He will essentially invent a kind of Southeast Asian kingdom in Central Africa. Why did he have his eye on Central Africa? Well, this is a very good question. It fits somewhat with what we were describing in terms of technologies and European penetration making possible a certain horizon that wouldn't have been considered 10, 20 years prior. We have the, again, kind of infamous figure of Henry Morton Stanley traversing Central Africa and charting out in a way that more or less wasn't done before, by Europeans anyway, the flow and direction of certain rivers and communicating back to Europe, in effect, what was possible and what was established in the way of African polities and African control in certain pockets of territory that were more vulnerable than others. The Congo River Basin, for for various reasons, was in a, a vulnerable state of affairs by the 1870s. And particularly from 1876 on, Leopold II turns his attention to this, to this area. Exactly what was coveted in the way of or mineral uh, resources or human resources is difficult to, to pinpoint. We know what came, particularly a rubber boom, but there was quite a bit of, of trade in things like ivory. And this was a source of attraction for people like Leopold II early on. 
So from 1876, he's doing certain things and eventually hiring Henry Morton Stanley to try to produce written agreements to build settlements and conduct trade uh, along the Congo River. But he really accelerates his efforts and tries to use these paper documents to to stress the superiority of his claims to those of certain rivals like the Portuguese, starting around 1882, 1883. And so he sent agents, I presume, like Stanley into the Congo Basin to then reach out to tribal leaders or kingdom leaders and get agreements in place to buy the land. Was it that straightforward? Well, it was in some senses that straightforward. Now, what happened after some sort of agreement was put in place wasn't always clear. I would say there's quite a bit of forgery involved. There's quite a bit of exaggeration involved. And in some cases, we know that agreements were advertised in Europe and in places like the United States that had no foundation whatsoever. But Leopold II becomes particularly convinced that as long as he's got some patina of an agreement on the ground, some shred, really, that he can leverage this into recognized colonial control in Europe and, and the United States in particular. And he does do this very successfully. I mean, there are hundreds of these documents, or at least alleged documents that are in circulation by, say, 1884. Was there a lot of duping involved as well? The leaders didn't know what they were signing, what they were selling, and, and then that document is waived with armed force behind it? Yes, I think that that's certainly something that happens. And sometimes the gap between the duping and the sort of waving of the document with armed force behind it could be a year, two years, three years, five years. It's a sort of makeshift shoestring budget, relatively speaking, that people like Leopold II are operating on compared to, say, a much larger power like Britain. But yes, the duping, you know, is is fascinating because we tend to think that the duping simply related to things like concepts of private property or languages that could not be read. That tends to underestimate the savvy and skill of African counterparties. One of the things that happens with the duping is that the actual paper documents that are produced are subsequently, in many cases, forged or, or fabricated whole cloth to make something that might have been a transfer of property or trading rights or you know some sort of permission look like a grant of sovereignty, sort of the most powerful kind of control imaginable, and a powerful kind of control that European states and empires become, you know, in their own right, sort of obsessed with over the course of the long 19th century, as, as historians call it, um, this particular word, sovereignty is one that Brooke, Brooke came to like using, the Brooke imitators came to like using, and Leopold II himself really becomes convinced as of 1882 that this is the word to use. If you use this word, it's got kind of a magic power to it that people can't deny. And how do you define sovereignty in this context in, in kind of the pithiest fashion you can? So first thing I'd say is, as with imperialism and colonialism, very difficult to define, very difficult to, to arrive at a consensus on, but this is something like supreme power or supreme authority. That's been around for a long time as a conception. But in the 19th century, the way to really flex this was to say specifically sovereignty. That is the, the greatest power imaginable, and it is one that only recognized governments and states enjoy. That is another kind of game or loophole that allows private entrants, Leopold II, Brooke, his imitators, to get into this mix of the international system. The players in the international system have sovereignty. And that, that word has a lot of power. And the claim becomes sovereignty by virtue of the fact that other sovereign nations say, yeah, we, we respect that claim. And there's almost a chicken and the egg problem. But once you get past that, you have sovereignty. Precisely. And this is a, this is a chicken and the egg problem that we notice most in these strange areas to us, you know, of kind of imperial expansion. But it's actually a chicken and egg problem that exists for 
much more recognized and presumably much more long-running governments and states around the world. Did the U.S., for example, you know, get its sovereignty or have its sovereignty at the moment, say, of 1776? Or was this something that was won and received over the course of, say, 7, 10, 20 years, right? Was it, was it crucial for Britain to, to, to recognize that the United States was independent? Was it crucial for foreign powers like France or the Netherlands to say, we recognize this? I think that was, that's, that's another component into this rather than just sort of a declaration uh, that, that this is the case. Yeah, sovereignty is a strangely ephemeral thing until it's all of a sudden not, and everybody recognizes it. Yes, absolutely. And, and to get back to your earlier point, right, when you show up bearing a paper or sort of making that claim that sovereignty is what allows you to, say, take control of a village or sort of assert rights of taxation or uh, assert rights of sort of exploiting the land or exploiting the people, this is when that word really becomes operative, right? And this is something Leopold II is is going to do uh, from 1884-1885 on. And hot on Leopold's heels are a panoply of other European powers? Yes. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's possible to think of it as being uh, hot on his heels. Um, And it's also possible to say that there was a lot of momentum here and there was something like collective action or fear of missing out or imitation. This is an environment in which, you know, this particular idea takes hold very, very quickly or relatively quickly and becomes kind of a, a cloak for imperial expansion that might otherwise not have taken place. There's a there's an opportunity here, there's momentum, and it happens with surprising frequency. You know, if you're looking at Germany, if you're looking at April II in relation to Belgium, if you're looking at Britain, France as well, there's a ton of imperial expansion here that's done, at least theoretically, along the guidelines of this Borneo trajectory, this this Borneo trajectory, and then and then what Leopold II is doing. So we can think of places like what are now the countries of Namibia, Tanzania, Cameroon, Togo. We can think of in the British case, what became Rhodesia, now now Zimbabwe and Zambia. These are places that were developed along very similar lines and with the same kind of notion, that is private purchases or acquisitions of sovereignty. This is all happening within the span of five, 10 at most years. So there's almost a, a gold rush moment, if you will, when everybody says we need to get into Africa. And it, it seems like it comes to a head pretty quickly with the Berlin Conference in 1884. It, it, was that an effort by the international powers that be to say, hold up, we need a little bit of structure to this? That's how I tend to see it. I mean, I think um, it's not wrong to look at it as is often done and say this was the carving up of, of Africa. Certainly that's true in terms of European leaders gathering and you know, pretty much universally saying this will happen. But you can also think of it as a, an attempt to put some sort of structure into place for an event that was happening already in many cases without the um, sort of express consent or superiority of recognized European governments, Paris, Berlin, London, what have you. Uh, It's an attempt to put structure around this and to say there will be some guidelines. There will be guidelines that are meant to avoid major great power conflict. You know, wars between France and and Britain, for example, at that time were still quite conceivable. And in fact, they do come to a near war in what is now the Sudan. They come to a near near war, Britain and France do, in the 1890s. Do you think it's fair to say that the Berlin Conference was perhaps even more to stave off wars than it was to apply structure to the the scramble for Africa? I do think it's possible to to hold both those interpretations simultaneously. You know, again, one of the things that's really interesting to think about is that this Berlin Conference was 
broadly kind of consumed and talked about by the public in a way that previous European congresses and conventions just weren't. There's a socialist interpretation of this at the time, and socialism is a pretty powerful political presence in, in Germany and elsewhere. That interpretation says that this could actually be an effective way to avoid or ward off war that would be disastrous. For my purposes, what was interesting was to look at the rules that were laying, being laid down here and to look at the approval on a wide basis of all these sort of private adventurer type projects that were taking place in, in Africa. And to say that all of these European governments really simultaneously are signing off on a series of projects, all really purporting to do the same thing, to draw on this Borneo precedent, that kind of collective action component of it was really interesting to me. And I'm guessing here, but I'm guessing there were no African governments represented there. Is that right? That's right. I think, I think uh, you know, with, with a slight qualification that there were African figures and African actors in terms of the political process in places like what became Germany, East Africa, in the case of Northern Africa. There were a few African figures in Berlin at the time of the Berlin uh, conference. They were on the periphery of the conference. They were not enjoying a seat at the table, as you mentioned. So, so their voice didn't matter in the same way as European leaders sort of arranged it, right? So, so I think for, for practical purposes, that's correct. They're, they're not there. They are invisible, and you really only find them in terms of faint traces how they're being arranged and used for the purposes of substantiating certain claims against others. That's most, mostly their purpose is to, from the European perspective, is to act just as those paper documents do, just as legal arguments do, to act as a, a basis of substantiating uh, the superiority of one claim over another. And because we know Europeans love documents by this point, the, the General Act, this document came out of the conference. What did that say? What did that set up? Yeah, so the General Act is, is looking at things like what will come about here in terms of trade agreements, in terms of things like the movement of weapons, the movement of alcohol, a pretty prevalent topic at the time. But I think to me, the biggest message of the General Act is that it's rather vague uh, and the enforcement of it is not clear at all. In fact, you don't have a case where collectively the European powers, as the General Act sort of promises, are going to enforce the rules of, of the game, so to speak, in, in terms of imperial penetration of and conquest of the African continent. But in theory, that's what the General Act is supposed to do. It's supposed to regulate and sort of assure, from the European standpoint, safe conduct of the colonization of sub-Saharan Africa. And so this is a couple decades before the scramble really comes to a close. It, it's in the early 1900s that that wanes. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the, the typical way to think about this is to say, look at 1914 and say, by that point, the scramble had closed. You know, there's a persuasive case there on paper. If you look at the map, uh, there wasn't much left that wasn't sort of claimed in the European sort of colored maps of, of who controlled what part of Africa. Now, on the ground, of course, and this is true, you know, there's a real consonance kind of here with Brooke and, and other adventures in, in Borneo and other parts of the world. On the ground, the presence of the European imperial state or colonial state was nowhere near as established as the maps seemed to indicate or represent. The control was much more incomplete, sporadic, even ephemeral in some cases. That's a process that kept going for many years. Was it halted by World War I or did it continue right on through that? We might tend to think of it as halted by World War I, but actually, you know, if you're thinking about the British or French empires in Africa, they really expanded post-World War I because their, their German rival folded up or, or collapsed. And this was even the case with the Belgian Congo, formerly Leopold II's 
private domain is sometimes Fiefdom. called. But, <laughs> but it, you know, in reality, with, with a lot of crossover to the Belgian state itself, I think just how, how independent that was is uh, tough to ascertain. But certainly Leopold did, in many ways, kind of cling to the idea that it was independent. But yeah, the, the control and, and expansion really keeps keeps going on uh, through uh, through World War II, and the digestion of these of these vast imperial claims is something that continues. I think if you're looking to to sort of determine when it ended, or arguably you know post 1945 and sort of the era of decolonization, arguably even later. Obviously, I mean there are a lot of colonial or imperial vestiges into you know certainly if we're looking at a place that was a former German colony, uh, Namibia. They don't get independence until 1990. I mean, this is a pretty late process. So by the early 1900s, we've got roughly 90% of Africa under some sort of control uh, by, by European powers, whether ephemeral or actual. It does strike me as, as rather late in the colonial imperial evolution of the world. And, and I think we touched on some of these reasons. So there, there may not be more to rehash here. But I'm curious, why was Africa subjected to these European imperial efforts so relatively late in the game? Was it just purely technological reasons? Or obviously, it's a counterfactual, but do you think if they had just sailed down the coast a little bit earlier, it might have played out differently versus North America, which seems like it's a lot harder to get to versus sailing south along the African coast? It is a kind of an arresting difference in terms of chronological development. I mean, I'd say a few things. The Europeans who sailed around the Cape in, say, the 1600s and 1700s, were in a hurry in many cases. They were a long way from home. <laughs> they were a long way from home, and they were moving back and forth. You know, if you're thinking about India or Southeast Asia, these were, and of course, perhaps biggest of all, China. That's right. Africa was kind of an afterthought. That's a good point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't want to overlook that there were, in fact, European colonial settlements in places like the Cape. Certainly, you know, starting in the early 1600s, that's true. But in a lot of those explorations, Africa almost reads as an impediment to get around as opposed to something to settle in. Right. And, you know, again, the, the, the Suez Canal is really transformative here. Now that that makes, in a sense, it's, it's counterintuitive because you're thinking, okay, well, they didn't have to go around the Cape anymore, these Europeans. But what they do need to do is defend and elaborate the Suez Canal infrastructure that allows them to cut down that transit time in a very dramatic and business-friendly way. And that need to defend and establish control around the Suez Canal is one of the one of the main sort of structural arguments for why the scramble for Africa happened when it did, late, but nonetheless, when it did, you know, that, that kind of expansion from the Suez Canal. And another big factor, we, you know, I didn't mention is the decline and demise of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman presence in Northern Africa is a pretty, pretty big deterrent to European powers, which are, you know, militarily and financially sort of in, a, in an inferior position in the 1600s and 1700s of the Ottoman Empire. Um, this, this is um, a tremendous deterrent that really only starts to break down in the middle of the 19th century. And that too is opening up certain possibilities in places like Egypt that did not exist previously. So the Ottoman Empire's demise uncorked at the top of Af Africa, so to speak. Yeah. And then if we're thinking about the other end, what exactly causes this movement from the Cape upwards? That's a complex question as well. But one of the things that's going on is that the, the Cape settlement, which needs to, to service all that transit between places like India, places like China and, and Britain, the Cape settlement is expanding. And over time, 
the uh, acrimony concerning exactly what will go on in that settlement and who's really in charge will lead to a kind of trek on the part of the settler inhabitants who've derived from from Dutch stock. They will they will move increasingly northward, and then a very large point as well. There will be gold and diamond rushes to push that European expansion as as a kind of a force northward as well. So that's going to be one of the one of the key drivers too. Thinking about Brooke and his Borneo document in the mid-1800s and then the real thick of the scramble for Africa in that 1870s, 1880s, 1890s era, that the very tight decade that you mentioned, why was so much activity concentrated in that decade? Why then? What was the sudden realization that made all these powers say, aha, we're going to Africa? It's my thinking that uh, there was so much private interest in this. There was so much momentum on the part of private parties. Leopold II, but also people like the German Adolf Ludwitz, the German Karl Peters, various French figures, Italian figures. This was happening. This was going to happen. And the attempt to, I guess you could say, really regulate and to, to channel these private projects is one reason it's happening uh, in the 1880s rather than later. If the European governments hadn't stamped and legitimated and then attempted to regulate to some extent, these these enterprises that were taking hold in Africa, it might have led to unanticipated or undesirable consequences in this larger great power game of control in the world. Africa was, you know, really the the key site of of interest at this time, but it was by no means the only one from the European perspective. One had also to consider, obviously, India, obviously China, the Pacific, and all of these questions at any point really threatened some sort of large calamitous war as, as European leaders saw it. So if private parties who always had this kind of claim to be backed and supported by their home government, they were after all citizens or subjects in many cases of Britain, France, Germany, what have you, they could embroil a government in an unanticipated way in some sort of calamitous conflict. So I, I think this was, this was part of it as well. Better to go ahead and, and try to channel this to some sort of, uh, as it was seen, productive domestic end rather than to allow it to, to drag European governments into unwelcome conflict. Or, you know, perhaps uh, another thing that's that's strange from our current perspective, this was a popular thing, the idea of colonialism for governments like France, Germany, and Britain. Belgium, to some extent, in the 1880s, there was the idea that colonialism was a dynamic force uh, and a dynamic process from which European capitals didn't want to be seen as, as being shut out or, or didn't want to miss. There was a a kind of self-enforcing logic here. It was happening. It was considered prestigious or popular. Therefore, uh, European leaders became convinced that they had to uh, to jump in and and sort of wade in the waters for a while, even if, in the case of people like Bismarck, there had been great reluctance and and logical reluctance to, to do this uh, previously. But the leaders, it sounds like, were were pulled by private enterprise rather than the other way around. Which I suppose, thinking back to the American colonies, is, is somewhat similar. Right? You had these rights granted to colonists to go to colonies, and it's kind of a private enterprise that then pulls in big governmental powers. But I'd always thought of it the other way. I'd assume that it was governments pushing into Africa. Well, I think you're right. It, it rhymes in a lot of ways with other eras of colonialism, past and present. I think it's if a traditional European or 
American or any other government is successful at convincing us that they directed this process, then that's a powerful and helpful tool for them. But I do think it was a process in which they were dragged and pulled as much as anything else. And I do think that's that's one of these consistent things we see not only in the era of imperialism that we're talking about here, but more broadly with colonialism. The private pull, the unanticipated consequence, the way things change over time, it's all there. One of your classes at Stanford, which I, I really chuckled at, was is called How to Start Your Own Country, Sovereignty and State Formation in Modern History. I would have taken that class. I love the title. There's this sense that I have, at least, that a country is something that's, it's almost, a, it's above the law, right? It, it creates laws. And so a country is this kind of almost semi-magical thing that exists, as we were talking about earlier, only because other countries agree that it exists. And looking at Africa in the 1800s, that, that seems to have been totally erased in a lot of ways. You had these sovereign countries, or if they weren't countries, they were certainly tribes or, or leaders or kingdoms, and they were just wiped off the map, essentially, by European powers going in and, whether legitimately or not, getting a document that said that this land is now ours. And so I, I wonder, as you've looked at and studied this idea of sovereignty, have you come to think differently about that idea of sovereignty? I have. To your point, I think um, certainly in the 1880s or 1890s, there were a lot of people in Europe in kind of the legal profession or in the halls of power who were saying, okay, this this sort of phenomenon with private adventurers and contracts purporting to buy sovereignty, it's something that maybe can happen in a place like Borneo or Sub-Saharan Africa, but that would never be allowed or never really take place in more established and as they called it, you know, civilized parts of the world. I think it's it's um, I think it's more complicated than that. I think they were denying that there's a kind of longstanding, deeper problem here with how states, as you mentioned, uh, come to get started and what they base their rights to rule on. I think if 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 you change your perspective from kind of a the typical, you know, narrative about declaring independence or something like that. In, and if you look more at, say, old Europe, in which you know, uh, contracts switching hundreds of thousands of people's political location or royal marriages involved quite a bit of territorial swapping, then things start to look different. You know, these are old practices that really didn't necessarily go away. I mean, I grew up in the United States, you know, learning about things like the Alaska Purchase, the Louisiana Purchase, Purchase of the Danish Virgin Islands in 1917. There's a real kind of strand here that that continues in terms of equating a certain amount of money with political control or control over a territory and the people who live there. We, we never talk about in history class whether or not and, and who lived in Alaska when the United States bought it. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I think the kind of the erasure there is something that we see, you know, kind of as, as you think about a continuity again between a place like uh, Alaska and a place like Sub-Saharan Africa in the 1880s. The people are often erased, and and these are configured as as sort of movements or transfers of property, sovereignty, and things like mineral rights or whatever. But one of the things that's also being brought to bear here is is the the power that this this word or political control supposedly grants, you know, power over people's lives, legal power, you know, jurisdiction, basically. And this is something I think that we don't have a clear stance on. I think, you know, in our culture, I mean, um, a couple of years back, uh, maybe four at this point, President Trump, you know, floated the idea of purchasing Greenland. Who exactly Greenland belonged to? Again, I'm using terms that came up a lot, right? Like, what do the people there have in the way of rights? Who would be the responsible party to negotiate with uh, the Greenlanders or or their sort of, you know, somewhat colonial home state Denmark, right? So this is just, I think, you know, kind of an unresolved vestige. Like, what's property? 
uh, and what's not? Is, is political control or, or sovereignty, again, a kind of property or asset that can at given times be monetized or, or spun off or, or traded, really? Um, now, the colonial era I'm talking about was not one of, of equal or fair trades. There's no doubt about that. But the legal idea here, I think, remains a little bit harder to really kind of dismiss if you're looking at history over the broad uh, span of the last you know, several hundred years. It's a really interesting idea, and I, I never put much thought to it. But to go back to Alaska again, there were a lot of native tribes living there. But I suppose the way I'd look at that after this discussion is, from an international viewpoint, they didn't have sovereignty over that land, right? Because the United States bought it from Russia, and one sovereign nation transferred it to another. And so they they likely thought they owned the land, but from an international perspective, they didn't have sovereignty, which is a different idea. Yeah, and that that word again in the international perspective, you know how they how they think of themselves, how they think of the way states start and move around, that becomes so crucial in the nineteenth century, really, and remains so to our to our understanding today. You know who's who's allowed really to to be involved in these transactions related to sovereignty. You're kind of crumbling my worldview, but do you do you think of sovereignty as a weaker and kind of more fragile thing after all this research than you did before? I do. I mean, I think I think one of the things that's happened is that um, you know moments that seem kind of inconsistent with with notions of, of popular sovereignty or sovereignty start to seem less like exceptions and more like more like the norm, really. And I think colonial history shows this pretty distinctly. And uh, but I think once once you know one pursues kind of again continuities between the era of imperialism and today, we still have a lot of baggage and work to think through. And yeah, I think to me, uh, thinking about how countries get started and how they uh, define themselves and what they base their right to rule on, I think if you really trace this in a lot of instances, maybe even the majority uh, of instances out there, we have, you know, what, I don't know, 193 recognized states out there or something like that. I think if you really trace it, a lot of these have claims that will not hold up especially well if you're thinking about how they define sovereignty or their willingness to to trade on it or, or sort of hire it out or something like that. Well, Stephen, I've really enjoyed this. And, and my final question I'd like to ask everybody is, what lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of Europe's imperial efforts in Africa and sovereignty, I'll add, that, that you think can be applied to today's world? Well, the first thing is that I think, you know, getting back to that question of, you know, when kind of the scramble for Africa or this era of imperialism really ended. I think there are a lot of ways in which this phenomenon lingers past its expiration date uh, as, as seen by Europe. In my most recent uh, research, I was interested in the diamond trade, for example. And, and if you really kind of trace the activity there, a lot of these imperial legal documents and sort of rights related to, to trade and resources, they don't go away and they remain kind of in very powerful ways and affect a lot of Africans' lives well after the formal period of, of uh, imperialism ends. Uh, the second point I would make is, if we're thinking about the state system more broadly, I think colonial slash imperial projects have had lasting effects that, uh, that we don't necessarily think about. Um, when are declarations of independence possible? You know, you started with these 13 colonies. We have a classic case here of kind of secession from Britain and, and a kind of constitution of, of a new state slash nation. When is that permissible? When is it not? Uh, we don't have a clear system for, for determining this in, in colonial environments. We kind of think we know when we see it, and maybe that's true, but it would probably be better to work out some 
some more precise rules there as far as the international system goes. Uh, the other thing is, you know, what what do we do with kind of the, the baggage and wreckage in many cases of, of European uh, imperial projects in places like sub-Saharan Africa? We have a lot of boundary lines that are, you know, noticeably straight, some that are crooked in ways that adhere to things like rivers, uh, but many that are not. And, you know, it, it is often thought by political scientists and others that these boundaries really contribute to, to conflict in a lot of cases, and that some of the some of the, the countries that started in the era of decolonization might well do better if they merged or broke up or really rearranged boundary lines in existing political units. You know, when is that possible or when is that advisable? I think that's one of the things maybe that this work I've been doing encourages me to think about more, kind of the, the fluidity of a lot of these political boundaries. Well, Stephen Press, thank you so much. Uh, again, to find out more about Stephen and his work, visit history.stanford.edu slash people slash Stephen dash press. Thank you so much. Really have enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thank you, Alex. This was, this was great. Pleasure to talk. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 